You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Ruthie Fearberg, and this is Why We Theater. The intersection of theater and social justice, this podcast digs into today's most thought-provoking and urgent onstage works with the artists who made them and real-world experts who advise us on how we can create impactful change in our offstage lives. After all, that is why we theater. Today we dive into part two of our discussion spurred by Ming Pfeiffer's play, Usual Girls. In our first part, Ming and I discussed the creation of this professional debut work of hers. But as a refresher, the play follows Kyung, a half-white, half-Asian American girl and her white female peers and the experiences marking their sexual maturation as they grow up in a predominantly white neighborhood in Ohio. From being blackmailed for a kiss by their male peer on the elementary school playground after he throws racial slurs at Kyung, to humping their stuffed animals, from looking at each other's bodies during a sleepover party, to then isolating Kyung in high school for her, quote, bad behavior and calling her a slut. Ming viscerally and emotionally tracks what it means to grow up femme in America. This episode focuses on femme, sex, and sexuality, and Ming, myself, and our panel of experts continue our conversation about pleasure and self-discovery, but that also includes misogyny, rape culture, and recovering from violence. If this is the kind of content you find difficult or triggering, I hope you'll listen with a friend or do what you need to to take care of yourself. If you choose to listen, I hope this is healing and validating for you, just as the first part was. More resources in the episode description on our website and on social channels at Why We Theater. This is the second part of our two-part episode. So I'm excited because we get to welcome back Celine Pereñas Shimizu, the director of the School of Cinema and a member of the graduate faculty in sexuality studies at San Francisco State University. She is also an author and a filmmaker. Among her books, The Hypersexuality of Race, Performing Asian American Women on Screen and Scene. Welcome back, Celine. Hello. Lisa Spidell is an assistant professor in the Gender and Sexuality Department at the University of Virginia. She is the author of The Edge of Sex, Navigating a Sexually Confusing Culture from the Margins, and also happens to be a sex educator who has taught women's self-defense for 26 years. Back again is Lisa. Thanks for having me. And Justine Fonte is redefining systems of health education across the board. The director of health and wellness at a K-12 school in New York City, Justine leads and develops training and programming to help create health ed and sex positive programming by teaching consent for kids, body positivity, emotional wellness, sex and pleasure. We are thrilled to have Justine back. Thanks, Ruthie. Good to be here. Finally, Dr. Tracy Gilbert is a sex educator, writer, researcher, and consultant of 25 years experience. She focuses her work to help members of Black communities claim and reclaim sexual wellness. Welcome back, Tracy. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. And of course, the playwright who inspired it all, Ming Pfeiffer. Welcome back, Ming. Hi, thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. I want to dive back in talking about dichotomies because we've been talking about pleasure and joy versus shame and guilt. But then there is also, there's like this battle almost of like, 
owning sexuality and like wanting to feel sexy, but like mm-hmm. also not wanting to feel reduced to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Justine. That's exactly the word. And I remember having that feeling as a kid or like even now when I walk down the street and there's freaking cat calls, it's like, why do I simultaneously hate it? But also if I walk down the street and it doesn't happen, I wonder what's wrong with me. Right. Mm. Like I remember being 16 and walking by, you know, there was a, a actually a Catholic school in my backyard and the pickup the school bus pickup for athletes was in the back. So it was next to my house. So I'd walk my dog and I would know that every day, if I was the one walking the dog, I was about to get it from the entire lacrosse team. And Mm -hmm. I hated it. But then I also remembered the day when I finally walked by and no one said anything. And I felt like I must be the ugliest person on the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because we've internalized the male gaze, which is the story of all of, you know, the characters in Ming's, in Ming's play. So Justine, how do we take that and say like, I get to be sexy. I want, or in this moment, I want to be sexy and it is, mine and how do we separate it from anyone's gaze yeah well and that's the I, thing. Need I, I, mean. I need to oh, say, ahead, say something i need to say something so you know there's two questions that are out there right now which is how do you define your pleasure and joy away from guilt and shame and then the yes. second question that you just asked is how do you define your own sexuality separate from the male gaze. And I actually think that that's not the way we should think about it. The way we need to think about it is to say, what kind of sexuality can we form? You know, that is not outside the way that we've been subjugated. Our pleasure, our very individual, intimate, personal pleasure, how can that be separated from the way we have been subjugated? So maybe our pleasure and our joy comes from and always involves our guilt and our shame. You know, our pleasure and our own sexuality cannot be removed from the sexuality that has been imposed upon us. I'm reminded of of one of my great, my best friends, one of my, my great colleagues, Erica Hart, who always asks the question, who is this for? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a very different um, energy behind something where I am attempting to like do something to make you feel good or to make someone else feel good versus something that I've made because I know it is what I want. Even if it's, even if I desire to make you feel good, right. It's different versus um, I'm doing this because I feel obligated to make you feel good. Or I'm doing this because um, you know, whatever reason that then it's other than what I want. Going back to your example, Ruthie, about going like, it's different when it's being pulled from you. And today you are going to uh, uh, entertain us, the lacrosse team, even though that's not in your mind. You're thinking about how, your school and how school went. You're thinking about this dog and making sure it poops. Like it's not <laughs> on your mind. You know, it's not in your, not in your wheelhouse today to be entertaining. But then there is the day where you might say, actually, you know, I do want you to give me a little look and I want, you know, and you give the, you get that. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, there's much more of a participation there. Yeah. And I, to me, I think you, I agree with Celine. I don't think you can separate it from the gaze, but I do think there is something to be said about having the choice to engage versus not engage. Are we ready to contend with the possibility of women expressing their wants and their pleasures? Are we ready for how? <laughs> well, Nate. my question is: I think we have. Point. I don't you know because I, I also want to acknowledge that at least for Black women, car- this is not new. <laughs> right, <laughs> saying right. what we want in music is not new. How do can we separate pleasure and joy from guilt and shame when it comes to sexuality? The optimist in me says that we can disrupt that cycle, and I think being around Gen Z on a regular basis encourages me to believe that we're, we're going to get there. I mean, we have to a lot of unlearning to still do for sure. But I mean, I don't know, Oprah style hand mirrors for every 10 year old girl has their gift <laughs> like, yeah. early and understanding and seeing how it works. I mean, if you know how to get yourself off, you're not going to settle for anyone else who can't give you that same pleasure. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, that's like yeah. major ownership on like, <laughs> why am I like, I'm not going to fake this because I can do this for myself. So I'm not going to settle for this person <laughs> who doesn't if don't know my body because I know my body. But that's the problem. Most young girls do not know their body because they've never yeah. been given the liberty, the agency, or the celebration to want to know their body. I'm thinking of raising my daughter who's 10 right now. And uh, I go with Justine that I hope, you know, I hope that it can separate in, but I, uh, it's a good question that Celine's asking. Like, does it, does it, is, is, is that the wrong question to be asking? Does it need to be shame-free, guilt-free? I, I think there's just so much that's being it, um, put upon us. And it makes me think of Ming uh, in your play, which I was bawling at the end. I had no idea like what was going to happen. You know, just reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine seeing this, you know, live. It's just amazing. And I'm going to get teary eyed right now, but you said, um, there was one sentence that you, you said that said, uh, you know, am I a bad feminist? And I, I, so much of that story to me is how, as girls and women, we internalize these messages and take it out on each other. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, I, it, that's what I think why we relate to it so much is that that was my experience of, of, of girls taking it out on each other. And the slut shaming, um, you know, my, uh, I wasn't having sex as early as other people. So I was the prude, you know, and, um, you're either, or you're either the slut or the prude. Right. Right. You're the Virgin Mary or the Madonna. I remember being taught for the first time when I was shopping, uh, sex and sexuality class in college that I did not end up taking, but when I was shopping it and the professor said, you know, sex is as biological as when you want to eat food and you feel hungry. And when you want to drink water, you are thirsty. And that it's, I also find it very interesting that the jargon we often use when we want sex is that we are hungry or thirsty, but we don't actually have like that impulse, that urge in the sexual realm doesn't actually have its own term. We borrow from other urges, but that this idea that it is natural, that it, it, that our bodies are designed to want sex. So I'm thinking about that while also thinking about how, when I was little and the reason that I loved the scene when they are, you know, humping those stuffed animals is because I remember, again, to be personal here, everybody's learning a lot about me today. But um, <laughs> I remember, like, humping my pillow at home and not knowing why, not knowing why my body wanted that, not knowing why it felt good, not knowing what the release, like what made me stop. I thought I was deranged. I thought I was Mm -hmm. the only person on the planet that was doing this and that felt this way. And to build off of what Justine said, to just like, like all of these building blocks are happening in my mind of um, being able to express desire and being able to, you know, only partner with someone who can meet your needs. I remember when a friend of mine said to me, well, what do you like? And I was like, I don't understand the question. Mm-hmm. And well, what do you like? Well, you should get a vibrator and figure it out so that you can tell someone what you like. And the surprising thing to me was not, oh, a vibrator will help me figure this out. That part was like new information, but made sense. The part that I could not get over was I can tell someone what I want. Mm-hmm. I had no mm-hmm. idea that was an option. And I think that that's because of the scripts that we're following. Like, you know, we go into that scene with them interacting with the stuffed animals going, my boyfriend says, do it now. My boyfriend says no more talking. And it's like literally lifted from movie scripts and which Celine told me to look up, which was very smart, is that of the top 1300 films from 2007 to 2019, only 4.8% were directed by women and 3.9% were directed by white women. So it's like we're absorbing the scripts that are written by men. What are the steps to reclaiming, or not even reclaiming, but to writing our own scripts of desire, of learning our bodies and what feels good to us, and then being able to express that. 
outwardly. So, you know, uh, thank you for sharing that data. This is data that I always share because I, oh, I say it's not like we know nothing if it's true that 96% of films that are most seen by everybody are made by white by men, predominantly white men, yes. which means that everything that we see, most of everything we see about love, romance, marriage, is written by this very, very narrow perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what does it then look like for women to claim power and claim voice? And I think that this act of claiming power and claiming voice cannot be forged unless you are contending with how you've been made powerless, right? And this includes our inability to talk about sex. The first time I learned that women's nipples get dark with pregnancy, so it makes it easier for the baby to latch on, was Ali Wong's uh, stand-up special that she did pregnant. And I was 29 or 30, and I was like, why as a child, a woman who's been of childbearing age for now over a fucking decade, I'm like, why do I not know this very, very basic thing? Yeah. And I think you even saying that, or recently, to, if I'll join in on the TMI, I learned I can squirt. Like, and I, was, I had not... Ever. And like every yeah. time I tell that to a female friend, they're like, how? Like, teach me. <laughs> interesting. Isn't that interesting that we're able to say that we achieve these amazing, mind-blowing pleasures in a world of inequality? Because yes. the sight of sexuality, it's so intimate, but it's so unequal. Everyone who's yeah. walking into that room, whether it's two people or more, it is a sight of inequality. Just talking about it. Yes. Talking about it is so huge. Ming, you sharing that is like, yeah, let's figure this out. Let's thir it took 32 it. years. It, it took 32 years, but figured it out. Figured it out. Figured it out. As far as guilt and shame, I think there is a certain freedom in knowing that you can be you despite what is going to inevitably happen, right? So as a Black person in the body that I have that is dark skinned, that is fat, that is in many ways not part of the convention. One of the great sources of freedom for me has been in recognizing that there is no single way that I can show up to a space and not have to deal with someone trying to assume they know me and how I am and who I am. Yes. And so my power has come in being able to say, this is what I'm going to be regardless of what you say. And so to me, the, the space of being able to say, yes, this is what I did. This is what my pussy can do. This is what my, my tongue can do. And this is what my mouth is going to do. I think <laughs> Regardless of what other people have to say about that, I still think there's a certain, that unapologeticness, there's a power in that that is not fully realized by all women. And I think often, I'll, and I'll just throw it in here, um, since you know my, my focus is on African-American communities, I do think very often Black women bear the brunt of that because they are often yep. the most vocal in pop culture with sex, such that everybody claims it and everybody's, oh, this is speaking me, my language and what have you, but no one has the guts to tell their own story as explicit explicitly as a Cardi B or a Megan Thee Stallion. And so I think it does take more of us saying, yes, there's nothing wrong with telling my story. And if you have a problem with it, then you need to check yourself. You know, there's the original sin, right? Which is Eve choosing the apple and hanging out with the snake, you know? So <laughs> women's sexuality, and it's, it's much more aggravated, right? In the, in the colonial encounter, whether it's Africa, Asia, et cetera, women of color, you know, but, um, our sexualities have this long, long histories of original sin that happened way before us. So I think I love the question. So I, so I said, self-sovereignty is justice, self-sovereignty is the dream. But what I love is to keep the question open of yes. our most intimate sense of self, our deepest sense of who we are is mm -hmm. always informed by other forces larger than oh, us. Absolutely. Which means absolutely. That it takes Herculean power, right? To assert consent to assert self-sovereignty as mm. important. All these things that can be discovered through having, through cultivating relationships with people will help us reach new levels. And so I think we have to always honor that space for what's possible as well as what is happening right now. So. Yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I also, I want to return to something that Lisa brought up in terms of uh, the conversation about self-sovereignty brings me back to power and how the two sides of that are the upper hand that males have in terms of power and how young an age they know it from, right? Like in the show, we see Rory asserting his power from the age of like five or six saying, I'm going to tell on you unless you give me a kiss. And knowing that sex and sex acts can be transactional. And then there is also the other side of power with the ostracization of uh, Kyung from the girl group because again, what Lisa brought up, the slut shaming and that that's our way of bullying each other. You know, this idea of the bad influence, you're too sexual. I can't be friends with you. Um, you're giving blowjobs to boys in bathrooms and that's not okay. That's bad. You know, that's bad behavior. Um, so these two ways of like using sex as a social power and using sex as transactional really, I mean, concerns me in both ways. And I mean, Lisa, since you were the one who brought it up, I won at first, I wonder if you want to start about, you know, how we renegotiate those conversations and, and again, like leveling the power playing field to the extent we can. Well, I, th I really feel like it goes back to wh what everybody's been saying as far as like, how do we create spaces to even have these conversations? You know, I, I, I keep thinking of uh, teaching my daughter about consent and, and asking, you know, I, all adults need to ask if they can touch her. You know, if you want a hug, you need to ask for a hug. And um, you know, sometimes I want to hug as her mother, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and then she'll say no, and I'm like, damn, <laughs> 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 shit, I have to listen to her, you know? And I, <laughs> you know. and I need to model that, and then it's like I I need to not take it personally, right? It's not about me; it's about her body; it's about her autonomy, and um, you know, just creating spaces for those conversations. I think, I uh, uh, you know. Uh, my goal for talking to 20 year olds is as if you are going to have children as potential parents, you know, how do we uh, parent in a way that, that, you know, creates that space for that conversation. And, and what you all have all talked about too, is just isolation. And, you know, how do we decrease that isolation? Mm -hmm. Because that's what I keep hearing from my students. You know, they're writing all these reflective papers and that's what motivated my book was, was their writing because they're, they all feel like they're alone. And so I just keep thinking of, you know, how do we create those spaces and being courageous because it's scary. Yeah. And, you know, even someone who teaches around this, I still sometimes am like, oh, well, is your vagina happy today to my kid? You know, just because sexual health, you know. I love that question. Yeah. <laughs> is your vagina happy today? <laughs> and not using euphemisms, not using yes. euphemisms for your sure. actual vagina. Unless you already know what the vagina is, because yes. some euphemisms are great. I love yes. Yes. Totally, so totally. But so. if it's used, if it's being used in order to take away from right. the reality of the situation, one a word that I constantly was getting notes to uh, cut from the play that I thought was absolutely absurd was discharge. They hated <laughs> the word discharge. And I said, no, I was like, that is a real thing. I was like, that is the scientific term for the fluid that cleans and lubricates the vagina. I was like, no, I was like, this is not a dirty word. Are you kidding <laughs> me? I think that that's demonstrative of, of, what the whole play is and the title and everything because usual girls I grew up knowing boys get 
boys get erections. Wet dreams. I knew more about boys. I knew that boys, you know, look at porn, watch porn at sleepovers. I knew what was happening. It was accepted. Right. And I knew what was happening at their parties, but they definitely had no idea what was happening at our parties. So it was, it was invigorating to be in that theater space with a crowd of mixed gendered people. And it was much more exciting for me, even as much as I was so excited to be seen, it was much more exciting for me to look over at the men having their minds blown because they did not know any of this. So one of my favorite stories connected to this was my manager sent my play along to a male exec in Hollywood and he read the play and they kind of had a follow-up conversation. He was like, so what'd you think about the play? And he was like, yeah, you know, it was like interesting, but like, come on. And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, you know, that scene where they're like humping the the stuffed animals. And he was like, <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. I think Ming wrote, like, it, it seems like it's a pretty uh, personal story. So the guy ends up going home, talking to his soon-to-be wife, who he's been with for eight years. He brings it up because it's constantly... It, clearly still like it's it's itching in his head yeah so he like brings it up and uh she goes oh yeah we used to do that all the time so a woman he's been with for eight years Mm -hmm. like that he's about to marry doesn't even know this so he called my manager back the next day and he goes sorry i'm an idiot (laughs) isn't that isn't that the answer then isn't that the answer then like make work make work that centers women's perspectives, women's experiences, and yeah. put it out there. Justine, you know, you work with youth and you design curricula and you create the workshops to have the vocabulary around these subjects. So what to you does healthy sex education look like? both like medically anatomically, but then also just in terms of laying the groundwork for healthy sexual self image. Yeah. Um, Pleasure based. I think it scares a lot of parents because they're thinking you're going to teach my kid how to like have orgasms. And I'm like, it leads to that. I mean, I don't think we should be complaining, but that's not my intention. Um, I think your kid already knows how to have an orgasm. But what we know from research is that if we teach them about pleasure and then they understand how to give themselves pleasure, it actually raises their levels of scrutiny in the relationships they have. Because if they're not getting pleasure from the people they're interacting with, they're not going to settle for continuing with those relationships or they would assert that they're not getting pleasure. And you can start talking about pleasure in kindergarten, like, what does this friend provide you? Is this person serving you? Does they, do they make you happy? Do they make you feel good about yourself? Do they make you a better person? And then that leads all the way to fifth grade. Does this person make you feel good about yourself? All of that, all the way, you know, until they're in high school. And the other thing is we don't teach young girls enough about confidence being a part of being intimate. A lot of people think that intimacy and sex are the same thing. These are not the same thing. So I will tell my students, there's a lot of people having the actual physical act of sex. And there are more people not experiencing intimacy because that is hard to understand. That means you have to know yourself. You have to understand the other person you're trying to be intimate with. It sometimes means eye contact. And this generation is used to screen to screen contact. So, I mean, it's no wonder that they want to just get the physical thing over with, either in service of somebody else's pleasure or to just be able to say that they have social capital or be removed of social capital because of this physical act. And it's another thing to have like an authentic, deep connection with another person. And that may or may not include physical activity, but that takes a lot of confidence and self-awareness and emotional intelligence in a young girl where we're not giving them that agency to explore that part about themselves. They are built to be the vehicle to give pleasure to someone else physically, and that's it. But they don't understand intimacy. Going back to what you said about the empowerment, how do we empower the new generation? I think it also requires us to acknowledge that we're often giving them things 
that we don't have and that we also have to learn it for ourselves, right? So going to what Justine said about intimacy and pleasure, recognizing all the ways that we compromise our pleasure for capitalism, right? For, uh, you know, to make sure we earn this paycheck, we go to jobs we don't like in order to not be alone. We marry people we don't like, you know, we may have kids because society said so and all of these things. Um, And so part of the work is also modeling for modeling for them by maybe even making changes in our own lives that recognize that we value our own pleasure. We, you know, giving, giving some time to say, you know what, mommy needs some space because I need to reclaim my pleasure because you have worn me out today. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Those things of intimacy, you know, being able to, to recognize, do I have the courage to say to my partner that I want you to do these things? So I think Justine and I do that work up to the K-12 level, but then the adults, <laughs> we got that reparative work that's also on our plate. My age group would be the 18 to 21 year old. Yeah. And I just had a conversation in class, you know, we just started teaching online this week and, and um, they, we were talking about uh, safety around COVID and like different universities are sending out some kind of interesting lists that are like, you know, find sex positions that you don't face each other and wear masks. Somebody just jumped in and, and said, you know, a lot of, of college students uh, don't kiss, you know, they're intentionally don't kiss because that's too intimate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I was just thinking about that idea of intimacy and, and how people are having sex. And, and Wait, that don't kiss in non-COVID times? Yes. Yeah. Like that's normal behavior is mm-hmm. to not kiss. Because you only um, kiss the people that you love. But like, let's have pretty woman sex. Is that's what it, what's happening yeah, well, here? Yeah, that's so dated. But they, it, yeah, I'm like, where did you learn that as a you know behavior or that like you know? So they got into this big discussion about oh, I love kissing. Like that's part of foreplay and you know kind of thing. But uh, it was just sort of interesting to think about that idea of intimacy that Justine. Well, was I do about. think. Yeah, just before Justine, you build on that. I, I wanted to add in that in my research, I found it fascinating that of the states that do teach sex education and teach it accurately, accurately, and teach it based on the CDC requirements, there are 16 topics that the CDC recommends that you teach in a sex education class. Of 16 of them, there are four alone that are about condoms. And there is one that's like something vague about relationships, but like none of them are actually about intimacy. None of them are certainly none of them are about the relationship with yourself. And so I'm wondering, Justine, if, if when you address what Lisa was just saying, if you can also build and offer how sex education about the self actually improves the interaction between people sexually. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm going to respond to Lisa's uh, stories there because I'm thinking of two very specific ones that are in the high school level that, you know, mimic what you just shared. One was that a lot of my students, high school students will say sober sex is serious sex. Mm -hmm. So they are getting lit so that they can do this physical thing so they can tell their friends. Oh, that's yeah. that's the intense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, bringing up Erica's heart's question, like, who is this for? It's not for their own body, their own pleasure. It's to be able to say to others, I did this, give me social capital. <sighs> the second story is... Um, uh, there was a school I was working with and uh, they did some surveys asking around, you know, what was the most common form of uh, sexual activity um, in this in this high school. And um, it was it was blowjobs to straight straight boys and um, asking them, like, you know, how do you feel about that? And said, well, I prefer that actually over vaginal intercourse because then I don't have to look her in the eye. Wow. This is where we're at in that, again, physical thing, but I don't want the intimacy. I don't want to look at them. Um, So to address your question, Ruthie, how do we help them to build the sense of self-worth? I mean, unfortunately, we're going into kindergarten classes and already, especially our, you know, girls of color already have this idea that they aren't worth as much as their, you know, classmate who's white. So I'm already doing remedial sex ed and confidence building in the youngest of ages. Mm -hmm. So you can only imagine my high school classes, how much I still have to just build their self-esteem. I always say womb to the tomb with everything about sexuality education. 
Yes. You know, there's, no, there's no like waiting until, you know, they're in seventh grade sex ed class or 11th grade sex ed class because sex ed is reduced to condom on a banana and that's not comprehensive mm-hmm. sex ed. Right. Sexuality education is a lot of emotional intelligence because sexuality is so much a part of who you are. It yeah. is part of your identity. And so starting with identity education at the youngest of ages, who are you? How can we embrace and celebrate that part of you and dismantle the powers that be that says you are not worth anything? Because yeah. likely that's white supremacy saying that. Amen. Right. Oh my God. Amen. Preach. Amen. Preach. Preach. <laughs> One mean, tiny I'm anecdote. So this is a, a thing, a thing that a, a friend who, uh, a male friend who just had a, a daughter, one thing that he's doing, you know, I don't have any sort of landscape of how this could be. But one specific thing is even when he changes her diaper, you know, she's not verbal yet or anything like that, but he asks even so before he changes her diaper, can he change her diaper? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, and also, and because like the question is hard with like babies, you're saying like, this is what I'm about to do so that they're used to being told what's about to happen to them in the same way a doctor would see a young child. You want them to say, yes. I'm going to check your breathing. So I need to lift up your shirt. Are you okay with that? Is that okay? So you're mm-hmm. telling them, here's what I'm about to do. Here's what I'm about to do so that they can prepare for it and know that it's not just something that is forced on them without first getting a, a warning for it. Right. Yeah. Right. And teaching boundaries from a young age and how to maintain those boundaries. But I was also, as you were speaking, what was coming up for me is also that for the side of this country that thinks we should not teach sex ed because it's teaching kids to have sex. And when you tell them how they will have more of it, Mm -hmm. it's like, no, kids are actually already having sex and 47% of teens are having sex and that has gone unchanged in the past decade. So regardless of that, but what you are equipping them to do is have intimate sex Mm -hmm. and to have safe Safe sex. And, and I think that if we can break through and say, actually, if you are trying to prevent violence, if you are trying to prevent infection, if you are trying to prevent teen pregnancy, then teaching about it is actually behooving your goals. I mean, uh, what, what the research tells us is that, um, the U.S. is far behind in terms of um, just how much it infantilizes kids and what kids can know. Um, we know when you when you do comparative studies between the U.S. and other industrialized countries, we know that um, they're not only learning more at younger ages, they're also reducing all of the things that we claim to have find problematic. So, parent, uh, pregnancy, interpersonal violence. Um, Uh, STI infection, all of those rates are lower in places where kids are getting comprehensive sex ed younger. So at five, they're learning about the the, the babies growing in the uterus and not the stork, right? They're learning Mm -hmm. about consent. They're learning all of this information. And so by the time they become 15, 14, 15, 16, not only is sex not this spooky thing that now I have to try to find out about because you've been depriving it from me forever, but, but they're more inclined to make empowered choices because it's again it because it's been normalized up to that point mm-hmm. so yeah the research tells us that the information is empowering and 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 it's really um the grip that various forces have on our country that keep that message from being out there um in an appropriate way I, now that said i also want to acknowledge that um there are some things within sex ed that still need a little bit of work um at least in the united states and that relates to kind of the history of sex ed yeah. right because because uh, sex ed as we see in many other countries does come from this developmental perspective in terms of giving kids the tools to be able to grow as sexual beings in the us that's not what sex ed was created for sex ed was about stopping problematized populations from having babies and venereal disease. Mm. And so when you start with that in mind, uh, you're going to have adverse outcomes in terms of what people do with that information and how they perceive that information. Right. We know that, um, you know, some of the pioneers of sex in our country were also known eugenicists. Right. And so we know eugenics is about. It links back to that oppression. 
Right. It links back to the oppression. And so um, in many ways, I've, I've argued that, yes, we can talk about comprehensive and, um, and abstinence only. But underneath that, we also have to recognize that the foundation is flawed and it needs to be re- restructured to, again, to include sex positivity, to include sex normativity, and to restructure what the outcomes are. Because the traditional outcomes have been pregnancy prevention, STI prevention, this whole prevention, prevention, prevention. Whereas where we need to be going, um, some su- folks suggest to a eudaimonic strategy, which is about advancing wellness, which is about development, which is about helping people achieve um, self-possession, agency, self-awareness, those things that can allow them to make empowered choices. And so that's just an important distinction I want to make. And does sex positivity and sex normativity in this developmental and educational perspective is that back to what justine was saying about teaching about pleasure from a young age of like this is a friend who makes me feel good like what what are the tangible things well that's sex positivity and sex normativity and changing the foundation like what does that look like yeah, so so definitely, right? The, the positivity and pleasure are parts of that. Um, but more importantly, I think is um, the piece of, of self-mastery, right? And it's recognizing that a person, that the individual is the primary arbiter of their sexual experience. They are the ones who have the capacity to make the choices that are age appropriate to them at the time, right? So being able to acknowledge that, yes, a two-year-old can say, no, I do not want you to touch me. And that is not indicative of some problem within their in their psyche or them being defiant or that sort of thing. That a four-year-old can say, I know what you told me in terms of my gender, but this is what I know to be true about myself. And mm-hmm. acknowledging that, that, that they have the capacity to do that. I'll even go further um, to share from my experience of a young man who told me, I know what you're saying, miss, but I fuck raw. I don't use condoms, right? And recognizing that that, that I have, that, he is the arbiter of his life and he has the capacity mm. to determine what he's going to do with whatever the outcomes are from that situation. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and, and that, that's very different than what we've been taught, even as sex educators, that's very different than what we're taught to do. If a kid says something that we consider to be problematic, because it assumes that there is such thing, not only a good sexuality, but a perfect sexuality that none of us have ever achieved. And yeah. that, and, and that th- it's not possible. Right. And, and that um, if you don't achieve, that perfect sexuality you are making mistakes that are irreparable and we also know that that is not true right so so there has to be this space to in my mind that we allow we we teach young people just as much how to think about their sexuality and to think about their sexuality versus what to think about their sexuality Mm. and that's what the traditional model has often been yeah justine did you want to add to that You know, in a lot of like conservative or abstinence only groups that I'm in, they're surprised to hear that when you teach pleasure-based sex education, it delays sexual initiation. And Mm. so I'm like, all right, you don't want me to teach sex ed? You know, they're going to start when they're 15 and that's already anti whatever you want. I'm actually going to help them to understand intimacy and do it when they're ready for it because they have mastered who they are and when they're ready for it and they know what their body, you know, feels like and what it should feel like. And because they are now increasing their levels of scrutiny because of all that self-mastery, they delay who they end up being physically active with, making the right decisions as opposed to, I'll just do this because I feel like I'm forced to, or it's being forced upon me. Yeah. So the data is there that pleasure-based sex education not only lowers STI rates, unplanned pregnancies, but also delays sexual initiation. Say there are these efforts to have like consent discussions, uh, and and it's still so fear-based. Like it's it's like consent asking for consent is seen as not sexy. Yes. Right. And it's all like, but it's still like if you don't do this, you're gonna get in trouble or something's gonna go wrong. Versus like the pleasure focus of like what can consent look like and, and what is collaborative consent and yes. that it can be pleasurable and joyful and fun, you know, but every, every conversation, any kid, you know, thinks about the talk or, you know, what they did get around abstinence only. It's also fear-based and you're going to die. In your classes for self-defense, I'm wondering if there's overlap in what Tracy was talking about, about the foundational pieces, like, my brain with self-defense went 
immediately to like, what are the moves? You know, like I'm thinking like martial arts style of like, or, or <laughs> I'm thinking Miss Congeniality of solar plexus, instep, nose, groin. But, and I, I would love to hear both the philosophical and the mechanical pieces of what you're teaching in terms of self-defense and how that is incorporating sex positivity and sex normativity. Yeah. And I'll try to keep it short yeah. since uh, <laughs> that's like a big chunk of my life. Uh, but um, I, 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 that perception of self-defense, I mean, I think is sort of a traditional way in which it's taught. And I, you know, there, there's all these theories of feminist self-defense versus sort of mainstream, like out of a martial arts studio where, you know, uh, it's sort of male dominated spaces. And, you know, so it, it it's impossible for it not to be connected. And uh, for me personally, and, and to talk about, um, you know, that, that this can happen in a sexual situation, right? And, and that's not how we're trained as women, where it's very stranger danger focused from birth. I'd like the womb to the tomb. I wrote that down, Justine. <laughs> I think that's how it is when it comes to safety. Also, mm. it's like, you're born and, and there's a vagina and a vulva and they're like, okay, we're, you know, they're all these safety like, tips. Guard are, it, guard it. Yeah, guard <laughs> it. And, um, but so, so, and people aren't having that conversation. You know, I, I, Ming, I think you mentioned that, you know, it wasn't in the alley, right? Like it wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, the typical stranger assault situation. And we're still failing utterly at having that. I feel like we're failing utterly at having that conversation of, of sexual uh, violence that you could be consenting and things shift. Um, you know, you could be, you know, talking about TMI. It's my turn for a TMI, you know, having sex with a boyfriend who pulls out, takes the condom off and tries to go back in, you know, and it's like, what the fuck, where did that just come from? Sorry, mom and dad, if you listen to this, um, <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, um, you know, we're, I had, I had a voice to say what the fuck and stop. <laughs> and that was a boyfriend, right? Right. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and so, but that, uh, I mean, what we know, I was looking for the statistic that I wrote down that eight out of 10 rapes are committed by someone known to the victim. Right. Eight yeah. out of 10 guys, that's listeners. That is 80%. So this idea of the back alley, you know, ambushed at your car in a park. Nice right. Right. It's not, right. It's not that it's a myth because I don't want to invalidate that that does right. happen and it is dangerous, but right. the majority is you're, you know, you could be on a date with someone and you are making out in the car and all of a sudden, you know, someone's hand is up your shirt when you were not okay with that. They want you to seek active consent. And like Lisa, you're saying collaborative consent rather than just taking the lack of acknowledgement as consent. I'm right. going to push that further and say it's got to be enthusiastic yes. collaborative consent. Right. And right. why would you settle for anything less if the sex right. isn't going to be enthusiastic? Right. right. Well, and, and that goes back to... I was just going to say, I think that goes back to desire, right? And and yes. normalizing desire and teaching everybody to be comfortable with owning what their desires are and then articulating those to whoever it is that they're going to be involved with. What we also are finding that a lot of people who have perpetuated rape don't even know or assault don't even know that that's what they did. Right. Because there's so much gray around, oh, I thought it, I could. I thought that was romantic to take your clothes off and push myself. And, and I thought that and I thought that if you say no, that it's my job to like push it because you really want to say yes. But we also acknowledge that rape fantasy is also real, right? right. So uh, if even if it's that you do want this to happen, uh, to be able to normalize negotiation and right, being able right. to have that using, I think the BDSM community is another place that we don't want to honor that they give us some of the best rules for how yep. to negotiate sexual encounters. Yes. Being yep. able to say, this is my safe word. This is, if you hear me say pineapples, we need to stop. Right. Yes. You know, and, 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 and establishing that even as, because we, we don't talk about it, but young folks are engaging in those behaviors as well. But that so, there yeah. is such a 
stigma around yes. consent that asking yes. interrupts that asking mm-hmm. is unsexy that, that asking is is some type of foreign concept that only shows up in definitely. sex like you don't ask for consent in every single thing you do in your life yep. you right. ask for consent to borrow the car you ask for consent for somebody to pass you the milk right like and, and all of these things you're asking for to consent go to the movies right, right. Can, can, I, can, can I get over tonight can you get me this shoe in my size? Like all of those things. And when we can recognize that and recognize the nuances, that gives us space to recognize and hold space for all the nuances. I have never heard collaborative consent until this very conversation. So first of all, thank you. But I think what's so interesting about that is because going back to what you're saying, Tracy, also about desire is like, we need to teach men how to desire consent. Like yes. that can be something that's fun, yes. that I can be excited by that, that like the onus, I think so much of these problems come because the onus is on women because <clears throat> yes, we have this vagina, this virginity, this whatever we need to protect versus it being this collaborative thing yes. and this thing that we both own yes. and that we can both feel excited and, and respected and, and proud of that we are collaborating in this and also if we're tying everything but also this uh, this idea of intimacy that this is something that we're sharing yeah yeah and I think like boundaries you know how do we talk about boundaries as information instead of barriers yes you know and uh because again it goes you know what I, I think Tracy was just saying that like uh, no does not mean try harder. You know? <laughs> right. That but should that, be like, oh, hey, thank you. Why don't I say thank you to those boundaries yes, you've just because created? You also, <laughs> but you've also given me what I can do, right? Not yes. like it's so much on the negative about what I can't do. It's like, what about all these amazing things right. that are now in front of me that we can explore because you gave me a boundary? Let yes. me celebrate that. Yeah, so that has to. That is part of the conversation in self defense. But then, if somebody's not going to be participating in that, yes, you do learn some skills to kick some ass. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, is there anything sexier than when someone looks at you and goes, I really want to kiss you right now? And you get to say, well, I really want to kiss you too. Like, I think that that, like, I don't know, maybe that's just me. Men out there, are you listening? Hello? Um, <laughs> but like, I think that that is so beautiful. And like what you're saying, like when we're talking about collaborative consent, that it's also not just the in a heteronormative relationship a male getting it from a female but the female getting it from the male and saying we want to do this together that this Mm -hmm. is something that that we're doing together and just to close out i do want to address you know that last scene in the play that like what happens when we don't have this it's not just the act of violence once again and that's what i think as we spoke about earlier, Ming is so beautiful that you chose to show the aftermath rather than the act, because I don't, we're not thinking about the spirits and the voices and the power that's taken away in that moment. And what a person without those things looks and feels like, and that it's very important to say that 70% of rape or sexual assault victims experience moderate to severe distress, larger percentage than any other violent crime. And that's sustained. That's not just the two weeks after. That's not just the six months after. That is the length of time. That that is your life. That is your life after. And in that moment in the play, as I'm listening to you know, Midori was the one saying it, but Kyung saying her story is like, I told myself that I just, you know, didn't say no. I told myself that I, like the rewriting of the narrative (coughs) is something that I think is so familiar because that's a kind of attempt at reclamation of the power that if I change the narrative to I wanted it, then this isn't a thing that happened to me. It's a thing that happened differently than I wanted. Right. Mm. And that there's less pain associated with that in some way. But that I think that everything we've talked about here today in terms of pleasure, in terms of power, in terms of education and intimacy and the relationship of shame and guilt with pleasure and joy and all of these things come down to the stories that we tell ourselves about our lives and 
who we are at the end of the day, whether it is sexually, physically, emotionally, or mentally, that this is what we're talking about identity. And I think that that's what you so beautifully were able to capture. And I don't know if there's anything, Ming, that you specifically want to add um, about that idea of the narrative. When Celine was kind of talking about, can we you know, separate this from trauma. And I think it's it's simultaneously, it's both what you said in terms of trying to reclaim and have some sense of agency in what happened. But I also think part of it is because, again, the onus is on us to explain why this thing happened, because ultimately we're at fault if this thing happened to us. So the yeah. reason that I feel like the older self hugging her, at least for me in my work was, forgiving the younger self because I went through all these iterations. Mm. What could I have done differently? I could have drank less. I could have not done blah, 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 blah. And actually being able to forgive myself and just being like, it's okay that this thing happened. And this idea of being a victim isn't this horrible scarlet letter that is going to brand me for the rest of my Mm -hmm. life. I didn't allow myself to deal with the trauma that was related to my victimhood because I didn't feel like a victim. And so in some ways it's this weird Jedi mind, soul mind trick that we have to do with ourselves where it's like, I can, I have to be able to simultaneously forgive and understand what happened, but also like that it doesn't define me and it doesn't make me a capital V victim. This thing happens. It happens to many, many people. And, and it didn't make you a failure that you were unable to control a man's impulses, right? Because that's what we're taught from so young is like men Justine, can't control themselves. talking about themselves. caretakers. Right. Talking about caretakers. Right. Men can't control themselves. So women, you know, be be the one that's in control, whether that means you're a dominatrix or whether that means you are keeping them at bay. It's like you be the one in control. I think that um, this conversation and Ming's play really shows how much unfinished business there is in terms of the feminist movement, the civil rights movement, and you know our understanding of sexuality, that there's mm-hmm. so much more that we need to do in terms of understanding the history of sexuality. Ming's work in this play you know, really resonates for me because of the inequality of voices that we get to hear talking about sex and power and rape. I'm thinking a lot in this conversation about the work of Chanel Miller in Know My Name Mm -hmm. and her experience of being assaulted by Brock Turner at Stanford. Yep. And I'm also thinking a lot about, you know, my students at a major film school and how 80 to 80% of our students in production anecdotally are male and the women share a lot of stories about, you know, the aggressions of their voice being prevented or getting, you know, key creative roles taken away from them, you know? Mm -hmm. So when Ming is speaking, when Chanel Miller is speaking, they're really speaking in a context of uh, courage, you know, and the histories of black women, Asian women, other you know, Native American women who in the law cannot be recognized as being raped because they're always already consenting because Sexual, they're considered yep. property. And exactly. that's the context in which this play is arriving. And there's too yes. few voices who are talking about the specific racial sexual subjugation of Asian women. Absolutely. And I appreciate it. And you know, there's so much more that needs to be done. What does pleasure look like? You know? And I'm so excited to see what that is. And I think that, you know, just by the people in this room as well, like, you know, talking about our personal experiences and all of that, you see before you how different experiences are. Everything is so individual. It's the both and. It's the individual and that there are connections because Mm -hmm. otherwise people could see themselves as being alone, that I'm the only one who had this experience of being treated this way when it's like, no, this is part of that gaze. Yeah. I'm wondering if you have your pie in the sky idea of what you want sexual maturation in, I guess, specifically American 
female bodied individuals and what you want that expression to look like and how we get there. What is your pie in the sky ideal? I'd, I'd really like to not have my students that are women saying, I'm just, I just wait for it to be over um, in their papers and that their pleasure has nothing to do with the experience. It's all about pleasing that male partner is how they define their pleasure. I mean, that's not all papers, but a lot. And I think just people not talking about, about intersectionality and understanding what that really is and how that impacts sexuality, you know, as a form a theory of systemic oppression. I think the, the key word for me throughout this is unflinching. You know, you shared mm. earlier that um, so few women, you know, get to direct and even fewer women of color get to direct and produce movies. But what a lot of people don't know is that an equally less number of women and women of color get to write criticism and history and theory about mm -hmm. representation, both mm -hmm. in theater and in film, right? Mm -hmm. So the people who are interpreting what movies and what plays mean also come from a very narrow perspective. Yes. So I hope that, you know, the work of Justine, the work of Tracy, the work of Lisa, Ming, Ruthie, this podcast is giving women courage to find the place to speak in order to value the work of other women. I appreciate Lisa's comment because it gave me permission to center my desires on the folks that I work with. Yes. And so um, my specific desire, my uh, star, my North Star, if you will, is a space where when it comes to what Black women and Black femmes produce in the way of knowledge, in the way of theory in the way of media that people mind their business and take care, right? I think far too often people are talking at black femmes versus taking care of them and being responsive, listening to them and being responsive to what they say. Mm -hmm. Everybody um, is quick to like, like I, again, I'm going back to WAP just because that's the most recent example of this, but so many people chiming in where it's like, you've never at all ever been an urban black girl. Like, how do you feel you even right. are equipped to speak about this? Exactly. exactly. But people have no problem applying their whack ass lens it, like the, the, the colloquial term is shut the fuck up when it's black girl time. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's my utopia. And, and my other piece is um, I would love for us to get to a place where we can have enough of this dealt with, where we can hold space for how this has also adversely affected uh, male body people and yes. folks identified as, as assigned male, just because there are so many things that I see with new generations of boys in terms of wanting to be able to do different things and not having the space to unpack and to acknowledge, like, I don't want to be this aggressor. I don't know what else to be. And right. so um, I, I really am hoping for that part, like to be able to get to that part of the conversation as well. Mm. Justine, you ready now? I think so. <laughs> I I think that I know I have adequately taught my femme students about um, body agency, body positivity, intimacy, self-worth. If when they are in eighth grade, they watch a porn scene and they see it as a comedy. Mm. <laughs> and they can pick yeah. apart. That's, that's not how this that's works. Bullshit. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That's my utopia. That's, that's my metric of success as a sex educator up to middle school. Marginalized people have used pornography to insert their representations in our history, in our Absolutely. visual history. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm talking about the, the free porn. Like that is ethical porn because those people are getting, m many of them are getting paid, right? And all of that. Only that's, not the, that's not the porn that my eighth graders are, are coming across. They're yeah. getting the free shit and they're thinking this is education and not entertainment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ming, mm -hmm. we'll end with you because you inspired all of this and all of us. Oh my us. gosh. No, all, all your <laughs> lives inspired this. And that's why these amazing women have chose to <laughs> devote their lives to interrogating this and researching it. And I just want to say that I am like 
so incredibly thankful. I learned so much. I felt like not to be cheesy, but my pie in the sky sort of thing is for other women to have been toiling with these things alone when they're not, hopefully not alone, but at least that was my experience. But then to suddenly feel an immense camaraderie and immense, just, yeah, feeling of being supported and knowing that not only, you know, me just writing this play is the beginning of this journey, but all the, like I've been writing down all these um, books to read and all of these things. And so I don't know, it's just been such a pleasure to feel like this thing that I felt like I was writing that I was like crazy, that it was my journal or something, or that mm. I was writing alone into a vacuum to be able to have this conversation for so long, to learn so much, to suddenly feel so held and uh, to have a space um, is that, and I also think, yeah, to, to make a joke, but I do think like, you know, for, for people to want to be good at eating pussy, like for that to be like something that is like, I think, I think if that could be something that people can brag about, I think that's good. <laughs> well, I just can't thank you all enough for your incredible thoughts and generosity of time and of stories. Thank you so much. I think that like what we've all learned and what I hope our listeners feel out there is that like we're all usual girls. Thank you. Thank you, Ruthie and everybody else. This thank is you. so amazing. I feel so blessed. Thank you. Seriously. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash WWT, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was deceptively and unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Genesis Johnson, Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There is enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.